I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. President Trump left office this week shortly after the House voted to impeach him. On today's episode, I'm joined by two of America's leading constitutional commentators who will debate the question, can the Senate try and convict the president for impeachable offenses after he's left office? Judge J. Michael Ludig was recently named counselor and special advisor to the Coca-Cola Company. He is a former United States Circuit Judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit and a great friend of We the People. Judge, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you, Jeff Rosen. Uh, I appreciate it. And Keith Whittington is William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He is the author of many books, including Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present. He's also the author of The Explainer on the Impeachment Clause on the Interactive Constitution and blogs at The Volokh Conspiracy. Professor Whittington, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Judge, let's begin with you. You wrote an influential op-ed in the Washington Post arguing that the president cannot be tried by the Senate after he has left office. Please tell us why you've reached that conclusion. Jeff, uh, let me first say that there's no place that I would rather be on this historic day than at the National Constitution Center with you and with Professor Whittington. This is a singular moment in American history both political history and constitutional history. We've all been witnesses to, we've all been participants in that history over the past months. Never before so many constitutional events converged into a single moment, raising for our country and the American people so many profound constitutional issues. I believe we can expect, and we can certainly hope, that never again will we arrive at such a fraught constitutional moment. But the moment has revealed, and the moment has borne out with spectacular clarity, the insight, the foresight, and the genius of our founders. The Constitution and the rule of law that it embodies and charts for the nation has prevailed in what many believe was its supreme test. So, Jeff, I suppose that's a long-winded way of saying that it's truly my pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, I would only uh, ask rhetorically uh, whether I get counsel to represent me, since uh, Professor Whittington and you, Jeff Rosen, both august scholars of constitutional law, have already uh, predetermined the, uh, the result of this uh, constitutional question. With that, I'll, I'll turn to your question. I, uh, in discussions with Professor Whittington before we came on air, I uh, confessed and admitted to him uh, that I had not begun my thinking about the impeachment clauses and the impeachment power, uh, much less my writing on that subject, uh, until last week. I confessed that in response to his telling me that he had been thinking and writing about the impeachment powers for over 30 years. I wanted to reduce expectations uh, by saying that at the outset. 
I did begin my thinking and my only writing on the subject about a week ago in the Washington Post. What I concluded and then wrote in the Washington Post that was that textually, uh, as a matter of constitutional interpretation, uh, the, the impeachment power uh, extends only to uh, incumbents in office, uh, the civil officers uh, and other uh, officials, such as the president and vice presidents, uh, that are identified in the Constitution as subject to impeachment. I still today, after considering all of the, the good good arguments that have been made by Professor Whittington and, and others, including my good friend uh, Larry Tribe, uh, I am still of the view that that is a matter of, of, of constitutional interpretation that uh, that the, the the House and the Senate, in this case the Senate, uh, is without the, the the power to convict a former president under the impeachment clauses, and then therefore as a consequence of that impeachment, disqualify the former president uh, from further future public office. I came to that conclusion, of course, after also considering the history of impeachment, uh, which includes, as, as Professor Whittington can, can tell us much better than I, uh, instances in which uh, the Senate and the House and the Senate both uh, took the view that they could uh, proceed to impeach, convict, and penalize a former uh, officer. In the two instances that I'm referred to in the Washington Post, uh, it was the case of Secretary of War and a senator. As I said in, in the Washington Post op-ed, those historic historical instances of this of the Congress's uh, conduct uh, are evidence that a Congress, that of course would not be binding on the current Congress, but that a Congress could conclude that it had the uh, the authority uh, under the Constitution to uh, impeach a former officer, including the President of the United States. But for reasons that we'll discuss as the, the hour goes on, I am uh, satisfied that that is that the constitutional question of, of, of whether the Congress can impeach a former officer it is not a question that is committed to the Congress of the United States by the Constitution, but rather is a uh, constitutional question that only the Supreme Court can decide. Uh, Jeff, with that, that's, that's the overview of my thinking. Thank you for outing the fact that I have indeed uh, revealed uh, my views on this matter. I do agree with Professor Whittington, as do, according to the Congressional Research Service, uh, most scholars who have closely examined the questions who have concluded that Congress does have the authority to extend the impeachment process to officials who are no longer in office. Uh, nevertheless, I am setting aside all my own views in this podcast, and I am nothing more than a pencil but ears. So from now on, I'm just going to ask you each uh, to respond to each other. And I will note that Professor Whittington wrote 
a response to your op-ed in Lawfare in which he respectfully took issue with your textual and historical conclusions. So, Professor Whittington, tell our listeners why you disagree with Judge Ludig's conclusion. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to do this. Uh, I, as Judge Luke mentioned, this is an extraordinary constitutional moment, um, important for the nation uh, to think these issues through. Um, and uh, as is usually the case with the presidential impeachment, there's there's going to be uh, lots of um, high feelings, both um, from a partisan basis, but more generally uh, politically. Um, that's going to affect how Congress approaches its task um, as well. But I think as best we can, uh, we need to try to take the issues themselves as seriously as we can and try to think through the constitutional issues. And these um, four are, are terrific opportunities to uh, try to think them through and hopefully educate the public. And uh, while I know uh, Judge Ludwig mentioned that uh, uh, we're prejudged here, uh, since it's two out of three uh, on this particular issue, it's ultimately the audience uh, that matters, those of us uh, who are listening uh, to the podcast can certainly make up their own mind. And, and at the end of the day, it's going to be the senators uh, who have to make up their mind as to how to approach, uh, approach these issues. Um, I am skeptical um, of the argument. I don't think it's an easy uh, question um, as to whether or not uh, you can try uh, former officials. Um, I think it's even less easy about whether or not the House can impeach former officials, although the thing in front of us uh, most directly is, of course, whether or not we'll have a trial um, of a former uh, president. Uh, certainly, I think the intuitive um, answer um, is the one that Judge Ludwig reached um, in his uh, Washington Post op-ed um, in imagining that the general purpose of the impeachment power is to deal with officers who are currently exercising power and you don't think can be trusted to continue to exercise that power. And as a consequence, you think that they need to be removed quite quickly. That certainly was what motivated the founders when they were first thinking about the impeachment power. They were particularly concerned, uh, in particular with the president of the United States and the possibility you're going to give this uh, very an individual a very powerful office for a very long period of time. Uh, you needed some kind of mechanism to remove him um, if things went really badly. And so that's front and center into what they're thinking. The question is, um, is that sort of exemplary case that they most have in mind uh, the full scope um, of the impeachment power? And I think it's not. Just to focus on the text itself, and we can certainly dive into the history uh, more, and we do have some history of how Congress has approached this question uh, in the past. But the text itself, I think, is is uh, not as well written as we might like. This is an instance, I think, when the framers could have been clear um, about what they were doing. Some of the state constitutions are clear um, about the nature of the impeachment power that they include compared to the federal constitution. But I think the really notable feature of the federal constitution, one, is, of course, it doesn't rule out, doesn't explicitly deal with, uh, one way or another, how we ought to think about former officials, either to say uh, they're definitely included um, or they're definitely excluded. So we're left... Uh, uh, reading the tea leaves um, of what's uh, remaining in the text of the Constitution. Um, and I think the very starting point of where the Constitution talks about the impeachment power is what it says about the House of Representatives and then what it says about the Senate. And it says the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment and the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. So one initial question is what's embodied in this power of impeachment um, that the framers gave to the House representatives um, and then followed through with the Senate being able to uh, try those impeachments. Uh, and of course, that's not a term they made up. Uh, they were familiar with an impeachment power before. That's a power that existed in the British Parliament and existed through British parliamentary practice. Uh, moreover, existed in the American uh, colonies and existed 
existed uh, in the American state constitutions before uh, the federal constitution of 1787 uh, was ratified. So this is for them a pre-existing power they're familiar with, they're familiar with its contours. And so when they're handing this power to the House of Representatives and to the Senate, uh, they have something in mind as to what they're handing them. And notably, all that history includes the possibility of impeaching and trying former officials. Uh, The British Parliament um, had done it. The state constitutions, in many cases, explicitly allowed it, um, in some cases required that the impeachment occur after the official um, had left office. And there are references in the Constitutional Convention that suggest they're familiar with that practice um, and understand the contours um, of it. And again, like we said before, intuitively, of course, we think about current officers as being the most important thing that we might want to deal with through the impeachment power. And that's what they had in mind as well. And and it's a removal power as part of what they're interested in. Um, But they also recognized the impeachment power had been used um, as a way of uncovering bad conduct by government officials when they were occupying an office and had done uh, and engaged in misconduct uh, in those offices to expose it to the light of day and then condemn those officials for having um, engaged in it. The British Parliament had used it that way. State constitution, state uh, legislatures um, had used it that way. Um, and there's reason to think, I think, that the framers in thinking about the Philadelphia Constitution also had that in mind, and they certainly don't rule it out um, in, in the text uh, of the Constitution. Judge, so we've talked about the text, and you're both debating whether or not the requirement of Uh, Removal and disqualification means you have to be removable before you can disqualify. And now Professor Whittington's introduced an argument about original understanding, and others have uh, supported his claim that the framers understood the impeachment power to allow for the impeachment of former officers, and Jed Sugarman has written a case on the Sugar blog, an originalist case for impeaching ex-presidents, quoting uh, the framers George Mason, uh, Edmund Randolph, and Governor Morris, on behalf of the proposition that guilt wherever found ought to be punished, as Randolph said, and supporting the idea of impeachment and conviction after leaving office. What is your response to that originalist history? Um, First, let me me add, Jeff, that, that I did eventually conclude that the text of the Constitution was clear, uh, that a former officer could not be impeached. Uh, And as for that textual argument, at this point, I would just say that I don't believe anyone would ever argue that, at the very least, the primary purpose uh, of the Constitution uh, impeachment power is to uh, impeach uh, an individual who's incumbent in office at the time of impeachment. So the only question that's being teed up textually or otherwise is whether the, 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 the text of the Constitution can be read to authorize the, the uh, impeachment of, of a former officer. Professor Whittington and others, Professor Whittington in his article uh, for Lawfare, uh, reasons that the Constitution is silent on the question and that the founders, quote, could easily have understood that the impeachment power implicitly includes jurisdiction over former officials. And for that observation, he cites the the British practice, which I I will, of course, take his word for it, establishes that former officials could be impeached. But for me, today, to be provocative, I would 
rely upon Professor Whittington's reasoning as he lays out in his lawfare piece to establish the constitutional fact, in my view, that the Congress cannot impeach a former official. That is, a Professor Whittington, who can read the Constitution as well, if not better than I do, says that it's silent on the question, and the founders could easily have understood the impeachment power implicitly to include jurisdiction over a former official. Yes, I would say. They most certainly could have. The question is, did they? And there's no evidence that I've seen to confirm that they in fact understood the impeachment power in that way, implicitly or otherwise. Professor Whittington, let us talk about what seems to be agreed on as the most relevant historical precedent, and that is the Belknap impeachment, according to the Congressional Research Service report. The principal precedent is the 1876 impeachment of Secretary of War William Belknap. Um, I'll ask you to tell the story, and why was it that after the Senate decided that it did indeed have the power to try a secretary of war who resigned before his trial. The House managers uh, concluded that uh, great goodwill will accrue from the impeachment at trial of the defendant has been settled thereby that persons who have held civil office under the United States are impeachable and that the Senate has jurisdiction to try them, although years may elapse before the discovery of the offense or offenses subjecting them to impeachment. Tell us about the Belknap precedent and why you think it supports your case. Yeah, so uh, William Belknap was the Secretary of War um, in the Grant administration, um, uh, so just after the Civil War, uh, during Reconstruction. As many know, this is a period in which federal government increasingly was struggling with corruption, um, a problem that continued uh, through uh, many years of the late 19th century and the period after uh, the Civil War. Belknap was accused of corruption and was under investigation uh, by the House of being corrupt uh, while uh, performing his duties in the office of Secretary of War. He resigned in order to try to um, avoid the um, continuation um, of the impeachment process. Um, and nonetheless, um, uh, the House and Senate decided to uh, move ahead um, despite his resignation. Uh, the Belknap Cape Belknap case is interesting uh, for all kinds of reasons. It's the one time we've actually impeached a cabinet member, um, extraordinarily rare in American history, although they clearly are covered um, by the impeachment power. But generally speaking, when cabinet officials uh, find themselves um, in this kind of political hot water, uh, they either resign or are fired, um, such that it's ne not necessary to attempt to remove them. Um, and likewise, in Belknap's case, he resigned rather than um, uh, require the Senate to actually convict and remove him. But as you noted, nonetheless, um, they moved forward and, and proceeded with a Senate trial. Uh, his defense attorneys uh, made a motion uh, to have the case dismissed in the Senate trial because the Senate no longer had jurisdiction as a consequence of his resignation. Uh, that motion was defeated, but ultimately Belknap uh, was acquitted, um, and he was acquitted in part because some of the senators um, still were not convinced. 
um, that they had a jurisdiction in the trial. Um, I think that's the real um, quandary for the House managers in the Trump case as well, that they may be able to get past the initial motion to dismiss because that only requires a majority of the senators uh, to be persuaded. But in order to convict, you need two thirds of the senators and any kind of doubt that might creep in for a significant number of senators makes it really difficult to win a conviction. It also complicates our reading about how should we think about these precedents, right? So on the one hand, the House proceeded um, in the trial. The House on its own uh, grounds for it as its own precedents thinks it has authority uh, to proceed in these cases. Uh, It survived a motion of dismissal. um, So a majority of the Senate uh, in the Senate trial in Belknap's case agreed that um, uh, they had jurisdiction. Um, But of course, Belknap was not convicted. And there are all kinds of reasons why he was not convicted. Some doubted the evidence, some doubted whether or not he actually violated the law in terms of the corruption charges, and then some doubted these jurisdictional issues. So how should we think about that from a, from a presidential perspective? And it is part of the awkwardness um, of uh, impeachments that we have these dual decision rules that are occurring that, that muddy the waters. The other case that's worth thinking about a little bit, though, is also Robert Archbald, um, who was a judge in the early 20th century, um, also uh, charged uh, by the House uh, with corruption. Um, In Archbald's case, and part of what's uh, interesting about that case for this purpose, um, is he had served as a district court judge and then had been elevated to a circuit court judge. um, And the House found corruption in both cases, both when he was serving as a district court judge and then 10 years later uh, as a circuit court judge. And they brought impeachment charges against him for both. And so in, this, in his case, he did not resign. Um, so he was still a circuit court judge at the time of his Senate trial. But one thing his lawyers argued in the Senate trial was, I cannot be impeached and you cannot put me on trial for the things I might have done as a district court judge, because that's not the office I hold anymore. Um, and if you're going to impeach me and try me for charges, they have to be for my current office, not the past office. Um, again, this survived a motion to dismiss. Those charges went all the way to verdict. Um, but again, uh, the House could not muster two-thirds majority to actually convict Archibald um, on those charges arising from his district court service, although they did convict on the charges arising from his circuit court service. Um, uh, and so he was removed and, in fact, disqualified from holding future office as a consequence. So again, we have another instance where the Senate allowed it to proceed to verdict. They held they held a trial on the basis of those charges. Uh, but again, it becomes very hard to actually win uh, the two-thirds necessary to convict uh, simply because some senators are going to still have doubts um, about the constitutionality of proceeding that far. Uh, Judge Ludic, as Professor Whittington concedes, it's hard to read the Belknap and other precedents because different senators had different reasons for voting the way they did. And indeed, uh, the scholar Cass Sunstein has read the Belknap precedent for the unexpected conclusion that ex-presidents cannot be impeached by the House but can be convicted by the Senate. Uh, So different uh, scholars are reading these precedents in different ways. How do you read the Belknap precedent and what's your response to the Congressional Research Service's conclusion that it stands for the proposition that former officials can be convicted and tried in the Senate? Well, <laughs> let me take that high inside fastball first. Uh, I don't think that we scholars of the Constitution uh, should be much concerned about what the congressional research says and what constitutional propositions they draw from the historical events. But let me go back to, to what is important. Professor Whittington uh, suggested that, that the varied permutations in the examples, uh, historic examples, complicate the constitutional question. Uh, I don't think so at all. I I think that all of the examples, 
including those that he mentioned and others that, that he did not, they all stand for the proposition, if you will, that, uh, that the Congress can decide that it has the constitutional authority to impeach a, a, a former official, and even, in, in one case, to uh, disqualify that impeached former official from uh, holding future public office. I grant that, and I'm, I'm utterly convinced that that's true. And how I dealt with that in my original thinking for the Washington Post uh, op-ed was as I laid out. There's no question that Congress can decide that it has the power, but we know from constitutional interpretation doctrines that when you have a dispute among or between the branches of government as to the power that exists, that question is decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. But more importantly, at the moment, my point is constitutional interpretation, doctrine of interpretation, uh, constitutional interpretation tells us that in that event, the federal courts, up to and including the Supreme Court, that the, consider the view of the coordinate branch's view of its own authority a, way, a weighty consideration. But we also know in the end that it's not conclusive as to whether that coordinate branch has the authority that it asserts. Before we turn squarely to the question of whether the Supreme Court would review this case and what it would hold, I want to ask you, Professor Whittington, to say more about the conclusion in your response to Judge Ludig and Lawfare that the sole purpose of impeachment is not to remove an office holder to prevent future harm in that particular office, as Judge Ludig argues. Instead, you argue that the impeachment process can serve as a warning to future office holders by clearly and decisively condemning certain actions as intolerable. Congress not only purges the particular malefactor, but also attempts to purge the misdeeds from the system and set up a prophylactic to prevent their recurrence. And you give the examples of the trials of Justice Samuel Chase and President Andrew Johnson, who were not removed, but both the trial and the impeachment were important vehicles for Congress to deliberate on and construct new constitutional understandings. Tell us more about that argument. Yeah. So I think it's, as I noted before, I think it's clearly the case that the primary thing the framers are thinking about uh, when they're including the impeachment power in the U.S. Constitution, and I think the primary way we've historically have thought about the impeachment power is for the possibility of removing um, uh, government officials who are incumbent officials who are uh, misusing uh, powers in various ways. Um I don't think, though, that that's necessarily the only uh, reason why we have the impeachment power. And once we take more account of the other things we also have done with the impeachment power, the, the more it makes sense as to why it is you might want uh, to impeach a former official and certainly have a trial of a former official um, as well. Um, so, of course, on the one hand, uh, disqualification is also on the table. The framers only allow for two possible punishments that the Senate can impose on those who are convicted in an impeachment trial. Um, that's a significant reduction of the range of possible punishments that the British Parliament uh, imposed on people when they uh, convicted people in, in a trial. And so it's an important alteration um, of the constitutional power of impeachment and where it can go. Um, 
But notably, only one of those is removal. The other option that the Senate has, in addition to removal um, after conviction, uh, is to impose the punishment of disqualification um, from holding a future federal office. Um, and disqualification is still relevant, um, even when we're thinking about uh, former officials. Um, the House very rarely asks for disqualification uh, from future office. The Senate has very rarely applied um, that punishment um, to those that it has uh, convicted. Um, but it is part of the impeachment power built right into the text. Um, and so I don't think we want to lose sight of it completely. The other reason I think that impeachments um, are uh, have been important over the course of American history um, is to try to buttress a set of constitutional norms and sometimes to clarify what the norms ought to be going forward, that they are uh, partially about dealing uh, with a particular individual who's holding office right then and his particular misdeeds. Um, but in part, they're also about trying to send a signal to the larger uh, body politic um, about what is tolerable and intolerable behavior um, uh, from government officials uh, moving forward. Um, in most instances, that's not very relevant. Everyone already knows that judges should not be corrupt. Um, and so if what you're confronting is a district court judge who is taking bribes um, under the table, for example, um, it's enough to get that person out of office. And if that person has to be impeached and removed in order to do it, that's great. If the person is willing to resign before the impeachment um, is carried out, that's great too. It accomplishes what we have in mind. But especially in high-profile impeachments, that's often not just the only question at stake. Often the norms involved are less clear, um, or they've been violated in particularly egregious ways, and such that it becomes important for Congress to be able to convey the fact um, that we don't want any government official in the future um, to do this. Uh, we might imagine that it's, that's the case with the Trump impeachment now, where part of what Congress wants to accomplish is to condemn this kind of behavior such that it doesn't get uh, repeated. But that was also true, I think, of the Chase impeachment, Justice Samuel Chase who was the only Supreme Court justice to ever be impeached. He was impeached early in the nation's history by the Jeffersonians. And uh, President Andrew Johnson, who was impeached uh, during Reconstruction by uh, the Republican uh, Congress. In both cases, those individuals were not convicted um, by the Senate, although uh, they were narrowly escaped conviction in both those cases. And as a consequence, they're often read as failed impeachment efforts, precisely because those officers were not removed uh, from their positions. Part of what got me interested in impeachments in the first place is I thought that judgment was mostly wrong, that it missed what those impeachments did manage to accomplish, um, which was to send important signals about how presidents and how justices ought to behave in the future. And so part of what Chase was impeached for uh, was being too partisan, um, to be uh, too clearly um, involved in federalist politics uh, while he was serving as Supreme Court justice. And one thing that justices and judges learned after that was you should not be partisan uh, while serving as a federal judge and you should change your behavior so that you do not act the way that Chase did uh, that led to him being impeached. And, and the Jeffersonians were extraordinarily successful um, in establishing that norm about what the judiciary ought to look like going going forward. And likewise, that was true about Andrew Johnson as well. Andrew Johnson had engaged in uh, some quite innovative norm-breaking acts in the context of his time. And one thing that Congress wanted to do was insist the president should not do those kinds of things going forward. Um, and presidents didn't. Uh, for several decades, presidents uh, avoided the kinds of activities that Johnson uh, engaged in. And so in that sense, I think, again, it was a successful impeachment in terms of clarifying for the political system how we expect officeholders to behave, even if it was not successful in the sense of actually removing a particular government official. And that messaging aspect of impeachment, I think, becomes uh, particularly relevant uh, when we're thinking about a high-profile former officer uh, like an ex-President Trump, uh, for example. 
Judge Ludig, what do you make of Professor Whittington's argument that the purpose of the impeachment clause is not only to prevent future harm to the nation by removing an officer, but also to send a message about norm breaking? Uh, one could imagine a, a Republican Congress impeaching and convicting President Obama and disqualifying him from serving on the Supreme Court. Is there a danger that if we broaden the meaning of the impeachment clause in the way Professor Whittington suggests, then there's more of a likelihood of partisan impeachments? Well, on that question, Jeff, unquestionably. But but on your first question, of course, Professor Whittington is correct. There are any number of constitutional policy reasons for impeachment. But if, if you believe, as I do, that the Constitution only permits uh, impeachment of an incumbent officer, then there are only two constitutional remedies and therefore only two possible constitutional purposes. I'm drawing the distinction, obviously, between uh, policy purposes for impeachment and the constitutional purposes of impeachment. Uh, if you believe the Constitution provides it as I do. So if the Constitution doesn't permit Congress to impeach a former official, then we know from the text that the primary purpose is removal from office, as Professor Whittington and other of those who believe that you can impeach a former official point out. But there is also a second remedy in the Constitution and that is disqualification from future public office. Those who believe that uh, uh, that the Constitution permits a, a former uh, officer to be impeached believe or reason from the existence of that second remedy of disqualification that the Constitution must therefore authorize impeachment of a former official. I think that that's just wrong uh, because that optional remedy, it's optional only to removal from office. And as I said, in my view, you must have a constitutional trial and conviction in order for the Congress to avail itself of the additional remedy of disqualification. But, but I don't think that you can reason from the mere existence of that additional remedy that the Constitution permits impeachment of a former officer because it is an available remedy for the removal of an incumbent official. So we have to find evidence, if we are to, to agree with Professor Whittington uh, and others, find evidence that proves that the founders intended to empower Congress to impeach uh, a former official. The mere existence of that additional remedy is not proof because it is proof itself of the limited, more limited power to impeach only an incumbent officer. That was less eloquent than I prefer to be, but the idea is there. Professor Whittington, I'll ask you to sum up your substantive arguments for why you think that the Senate does have the power to try a former officer. And, and one of the important ones that you and others have made is that an official shouldn't be able to 
avoid uh, the penalty of disqualification from holding future offices simply by resigning moments before an impeachment or before the trial. Yeah, it's certainly a difficulty that you could potentially leave uh, the congressional process in the hands of the individual who we think is engaged in misconduct, um, that they can short circuit that process and bring it to um, a quick conclusion by uh, simply resigning office and as a consequence denying uh, the Senate, maybe even the House uh, jurisdiction um, over their actions. Um you can imagine the Constitution is actually designed that way, and maybe that, that would be the case. Certainly, I think it becomes an even more difficult question um, if disqualification was not included as a possible penalty associated uh, with the impeachment power, if, if the Constitution only mentioned uh, removal. Um, or said, for example, that the power of the Senate sh- uh, to impose punishment on the convicted in an impeachment trial can extend no further than removal. Um, uh, then in particular, we would have to start worrying about, okay, what would be the point in, uh, of engaging in impeachment? Um, that can only result in removal for when we're talking about a former officer. One answer I think that would still be on the table, even in that context, is uh, the public condemnation of the behavior. And one rationale that legislatures have traditionally pursued for um, impeaching, and one reason why we uh, wanted the impeachment power and it was understood to exist, uh, was in order to expose wrongdoing by particular government officials. Um, uh, So imagine, for example, as was the case in the early state constitutions, when many government officials only held office for a year. And often the legislature wasn't even in session for a good chunk of the time that, uh, for example, a governor uh, might hold a term of office. One thing those constitutions were designed to do was allow for the possibility for a legislature to look back on the conduct of that kind of official when they were holding office and expose the misconduct they had engaged in and condemn it uh, as unacceptable, both in terms of sending the message to the larger system, but also ex- uh, in order to condemn that individual uh, for having engaged in bad behavior uh, while uh, they were conducting a high high office. Um, So I think there are circumstances in which we might think it's particularly important to provide uh, Congress that opportunity um, to be able to review what happened and condemn it. Now, of course, in our modern context, we think about all kinds of tools that Congress might have to do those things. We accept resolutions of censure as being available for Congress um, to expose, although something that early Americans uh, argued about whether or not Congress had a power uh, to do that. Congress routinely holds oversight hearings in order to try to expose um, uh, bad behavior. Um, but nonetheless, the impeachment context is um, a particularly significant um, and high-profile um, and emphatic way of trying to address uh, wrongdoing. Uh, when it occurs. I would just also note that one uh, piece of uh, further historical information about this is the impeachment of Warren Hastings that occurred uh, in uh, England. Um, That was contemporaneous uh, with the founders uh, meeting in Philadelphia to draft the Constitution. Hastings had been uh, the governor of India, but it was accused of corruption and misbehavior when he had been conducting his uh, duties uh, in India. But at the time of his impeachment by the House of Commons, he was no longer a government official. He had resigned and left office as well. Um, And the founders were aware of the Hastings um, impeachment. They referenced the Hastings impeachment um, in the convention debates and moreover referenced it positively. That is to say, uh, there's an insistence that we need to be able to get to uh, situations like Hastings uh, with this impeachment power. And what they're primarily arguing about in context when they make that claim is they're worried about high crimes and misdemeanors, what the kinds of crimes are um, that can lead to impeachment need to be broad enough in scope to address the Hastings 
situation um, that they saw occurring uh, in uh, England. But no one suggested, uh, well, look, the Hastings is going to be a problem for us because Hastings is a former official and we shouldn't do it. And notably, the only, the prior impeachment that um, the House had engaged in in, in Parliament, uh, which occurred earlier in that century, was also of a former government official. Um, so all the examples they had in hand of thinking about how is this impeachment power used in England, for example, all the recent examples are, in fact, of former officials. Um, and so I think, again, it just would have been the most natural thing in the world for them to think that when those people engage in misconduct, uh, even if they've already left office, um, it should be possible for the legislature to expose the fact that they engaged in that misconduct and condemn them for it. Uh, in a formal proceeding in which the office holder has, or a former office holder, as the case may be, uh, has the opportunity to defend themselves, um, as is the case uh, in the context of a Senate trial. Uh, Judge Ludig, uh, please respond to any of those points you think are necessary. And then let's turn squarely to the jurisdictional question, uh, and in particular, whether the Supreme Court is likely to weigh in. In your op-ed piece, you argue that in the end, only the Supreme Court can answer the question of whether Congress can impeach a president who's left office prior to its attempted impeachment of him. It is highly unlikely the Supreme Court would yield to Congress's view that it has the power to impeach a president who is no longer in office when the Constitution itself is so clear that it is not. Tell us why you reached that conclusion. First, in, in response to that invitation, I would just say this about the Hastings case and the similar cases from uh, British experience and, and the pre-founding uh, that Professor Whittington has recited and cited and knows far more about it than, than I do. I would, in, in interpreting the Constitution itself, I would draw the, the negative inference from the fact of these impeachments and the fact that the founders knew of them and did not provide explicitly for impeachment of a former officer that the Constitution does not allow for such. Then turning to, to the justiciability question that, that you raised next, I don't have any doubt at all, and in fact, Supreme Court case law and other federal court state case law establishes such, that much, if not all, questions surrounding the impeachment process are mm -hmm. committed to the Congress of the United States, and thus non-justiciable political questions. But I am convinced that the, the, the single exception to that is the overarching constitutional question of whether the Congress can impeach a former officer. I don't have any doubt about this in the world, okay? Not that that makes it so. I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I've thought a great deal about it and I'm convinced of it. And Professor Whittington uh, found himself tempted to come to the same conclusion but didn't draw the final conclusion. Uh, so the, to, to his great credit, though, he raised the issue, and that's the way I'd present it to the National Constitution Center. Professor Whittington, toward the end of his good piece uh, in Lawfare, raised the distinction that I, in fact, rely upon. He, in discussing the, the Walter Nixon case, there, Professor Whittington said, you know, I wonder if you could not distinguish the current case with President Trump from cases like the Walter Nixon case on the grounds that, that in those other cases, 
the courts were concerned only with the impeachment process. In the Nixon case, Walter Nixon case, it was the the question was whether or not there there was or had been or, or would be a Senate trial within the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, had I been sitting on the federal court, uh, I, I, without much thought at all, I would have held that that that, that is a political question uh, committed to the discretion and prerogative of the Senate of the United States, and thus non-justiciable. Uh, and there are several other cases that, that are along the same lines and that I, I would confidently distinguish on the ground that I, I did previously, which is those questions are all about the impeachment process. That's not a question for the courts to concern themselves with. In contrast, the high constitutional question of whether the Congress can impeach a former official or rather whether they are empowered only to impeach uh, an incumbent in office, that I am utterly convinced is a, a question that only the Supreme Court can decide, Jeff. Professor Whittington, you read the Walter Nixon case differently and concluded that this is not a matter for judicial resolution. Tell us what the Walter Nixon case said and why you concluded that the court's sweeping conclusion in that case that parties do not offer evidence of a single word in the history of the Constitutional Convention or in contemporary commentary that even alludes to the possibility of judicial review in the context of the impeachment powers, you say that that sweeping conclusion is not very promising for the justiciability of this issue. So the Walter Nixon case is uh, really the only time when the Supreme Court has weighed in um, on uh, the impeachment issue at all. Um, It involved the case of a federal judge um, who was impeached and put on Senate trial and ultimately uh, convicted. Um, And the question there was how the Senate um, conducted its trial. Um, So the Senate adopted a a new process uh, for how the Senate had done it before um, in holding a trial, which is they primarily delegated uh, most of the trial activity to a committee um, to actually uh, hear witnesses and uh, pursue the evidence. Uh, And then the full Senate uh, voted on uh, the trial record, uh, basically assembled um, in the committee. And the question for the court was, does this count as a trial um, as the Constitution commands the Senate to hold a trial um, in the context of impeachments? Um, And uh, the court um, concluded that uh, this is a political question entrusted entirely to Congress. And as a consequence, the court shouldn't weigh in uh, one way or another as to whether or not um, this uh, meets the standard of a trial. I think it's quite evident um, that the court would take a similar view to all kinds of other uh, impeachment-related questions. So Alan Dershowitz, during the first Trump impeachment, um, strongly argued that the court ought to review and would review uh, what counts as high crimes and misdemeanors, um, such that if you impeached or convicted um, an officer for something that was not uh, truly a high crime misdemeanor, according to the Constitution, that the court would, in fact, uh, intervene um, to set that uh, verdict aside. I thought that was um, also a 
mistaken um, as a analysis of what the court's likely to do, and as especially given what it's uh, said in the Nixon case. It does have this very sweeping claim uh, in the Nixon case that this is entrusted, enti- the entire impeachment power is entrusted to Congress, and as a consequence, is, is a political question uh, for a different body uh, to uh, resolve. Um, there's not a lot of reference, for example, to we don't have manageable standards here, which is also one of the ways in which the court um, uh, deals with political questions, just to say this is not something that provides enough guidance for courts to become involved. And we might think that's true about um, high crimes and misdemeanors, for example. I do wonder if this jurisdictional question uh, wouldn't open the door a little bit to uh, judicial intervention, um, despite that kind of broad claim. So you can imagine the court thinking, well, when we said the impeachment power uh, broadly, we didn't really mean this question um, about um, jurisdiction and whether or not you can hold trials of former officers, both because they might think the text is clear here. And so as a consequence, there's a firmer standard that they can rely on. They might think that that jurisdictional question is part of the boundary line of determining what exactly has been entrusted to a different branch. And as a consequence, the courts ought to patrol that boundary line to make sure that they weren't um, going outside it. So imagine an instance in which, uh, for example, the House impeached a private citizen who's never held government office at all. Um, it's universally regarded in the American context that that's not that those people cannot be impeached. The House cannot impeach me, for example, um, no matter how much they might dislike me and would like to uh, publicly condemn me um, and perhaps even disqualify me from holding future office. It's universally regarded that private citizens are out of bounds uh, from the impeachment power. But imagine the House did it nonetheless, and the Senate even held a trial and convicted somebody. It would surely be extraordinarily tempting for the court to want to weigh in on that and say uh, that's out of bounds, a violation of the Constitution, um, and can't be allowed. There's also practical issues the court raises in the Nixon case that I think are less pressing in this kind of context, uh, which is that one of the things the Nixon case uh, raised was this possibility of, well, imagine, as Alan Dershowitz encouraged us to imagine, um, imagine the House uh, impeaches a, a, a sitting president and the Senate convicts and removes the sitting president, and then the sitting president or that president who just has been impe- uh, convicted and removed uh, now appeals to the courts uh, to intervene in order to deny that he has been constitutionally removed from office. Uh, and the court takes up that question and schedules a hearing and um, is eventually going to issue an opinion, in which case we'd have a period of time in which two different people uh, were simultaneously claiming to be the president of the United States. And that's clearly a disastrous situation. And so the court suggested really, well, look, we ought to stay out of these things in order to provide greater clarity for what happens in this process um, as well. But with a former official, that's much less um, of, a, of a prudential issue that w- we ought to necessarily uh, worry about. So at the end of the day, I'm particularly inclined to think that part of what's important about the impeachment power is um, that it is a firm marker of the supremacy of Congress within the constitutional system. Um, Our system has moved a great deal toward judicial supremacy in which judges are convinced um, that they have the final say about any and all constitutional questions and the space of thinking about constitutional questions that should not be resolved by judges is shrinking um, every term uh, practically. Um, But the impeachment power is given to Congress for a reason. It is the first branch of the government is the most democratic branch of the government, and and only Congress has the authority to remove the members of the other two branches um, from power when when, uh, the Congress believes that they've uh, misbehaved. Um, 
and in this sense, I think the Senate really is the final court of appeal uh, when it comes to impeachments. That's not to say the Senate might not abuse its power. That's not to say the Senate's always going to get it right. Uh, the Senate might well make mistakes. Um, but that's true about the U.S. Supreme Court, too. And as we sometimes say about the U.S. Supreme Court, it's not final because it's always right. Um, it's right because it's final. Um, and uh, that's true about the Senate, too, I think, in the impeachment context. It is the final and ultimate court uh, in resolving these questions. And even if the Senate makes a mistake, um, they get the last word um, on that mistake. And they ought to uh, because they are the most uh, democratic branch in this context to resolve these questions. And as a consequence, this is the one place where they have the highest authority to speak to uh, what the meaning of the Constitution uh, is and what uh, the issues are um, that brought the impeachment forward in the first place. Judge, uh, your response, Professor Whittington has argued that to get to your result, the Supreme Court would run the risk of upending the constitutional system by claiming judicial supremacy over one component of the most awesome and delicate authority granted to Congress. You acknowledge the question is open, but you say you are confident about the right answer and how the court would hold. Share with our listeners your reasoning, and if, if you were writing the Supreme Court opinion arguing that uh, the Senate had no power to try a former official, what would that look like? Well, um, the, the Constitution itself commits the, uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States the supremacy to, to determine this question. By way of a footnote, I would never have thought the argument uh, that the court should decide the high crimes and misdemeanors question that Professor Dershowitz presented uh, I would never, I, I would, I would have thought that is classic political question doctrine. My point is I see uh, a vast difference and distinction between the high crimes and misdemeanor question, the Walter Nixon, you know, definition of a Senate trial question and the question that may be posed, uh, for, for decision in, in the coming weeks of whether uh, the Congress can impeach a, a former officer of, of the United States. And then, then my final comment, unless you uh, request another, is that we are likely to get very powerful signal on this uh, justiciability question uh, in the weeks ahead if the Chief Justice of the United States is asked to preside over a Senate trial and either agrees to preside or agrees not to preside, the latter event of which would send a very strong signal that he understands that the trial will be challenged by the president's lawyers and that he must decide at some point whether or not that Senate trial is constitutional or not uh, for uh, to impeach a former officer of the United States. Professor Whittington, what do you make of Judge Whittington's suggestion that Chief Justice Roberts's decision to preside or not over the impeachment trial could tip the Supreme Court's hand on the justiciability question? And what are your final thoughts about why, if asked, the court would conclude that the question of the timing of the trial is not justiciable? It's a very interesting suggestion. I have to admit, I had not uh, thought about whether or not uh, the Chief Justice's willingness to preside would be a signal um, about uh, how he at least is thinking about the court's uh, future involvement. Um, I do think it's a, um, a genuinely open uh, question and not at all clear to me as to whether or not the Chief Justice ought to or is required to preside um, over 
over the trial of a former president. As you say, the Constitution requires the chief justice preside over the trial of, uh, of the president. And so one way to read that, of course, is that if you're impeaching a former president then or having a trial of a former president, in this case, the president's already been impeached while he's still an incumbent. But if you're having a trial of a former president, that what you're having a trial is of, of an individual held an office, and the office is the president. And as a consequence, the chief justice ought to be there um, uh, presiding. But I don't know if that necessarily follows, and you can imagine um, both the Senate and the Chief Justice taking a different view um, about whether or not his presence is, is necessary um, in this context of a former officer. I think the other very interesting signal that could arise is that the Chief Justice agrees to appear um, as the presiding officer. He's sitting as the presiding officer, and then the first thing we get is a motion to dismiss the case on the grounds that the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction to try an impeachment of a former officer. Um Roberts, I think correctly, uh, in the first impeachment trial of President Trump, um, generally took the view that um, he's simply there to follow the Senate rules, and it's the Senate majority that makes decisions about what those rules are. He should not be an activist presiding officer influencing the context, but it'd be an interesting moment for whether or not Chief Justice uh, tips his hand on how he thinks about that question um, if, he ha- if he was sitting as presiding officer when that motion uh, was, was made. Uh, it will be an interesting question. I think the court will be very tempted to involve itself just because the court's always tempted to involve itself in constitutional questions uh, these days. And so uh, I, I would never bet against the court uh, intervening. Uh, on and, and this and this does seem like an issue that, that you could imagine happening in ways I really do find uh, quite unimaginable um, on, on some other, uh, in some other impeachment-related uh, uh, contexts. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this very substantive and illuminating debate. And Judge, the first is to you. Please sum up for our wonderful We the People listeners why you believe that the Constitution does not authorize the Senate to try a former president who's been impeached and why, if the Senate decides to go ahead with a trial, you believe that the Supreme Court will intervene and hold that there is no jurisdiction in the Senate to hold the trial. Jeff, I'm convinced that the Constitution textually provide for the impeachment only of one who is, at the time of impeachment, incumbent in office. All the arguments to the contrary, they concede that there is nothing on the face of of the constitutional text, and there's nothing in the history, the constitutional history of the, the founding or before, that confirms that the Constitution allows the impeachment of a former uh, officer. Uh, They argue from uh, history, not just American history, but British history, that, as Professor Whittington uh, points out in his piece, the framers were aware of of the concept of impeachment of a former officer, but they offer no evidence, and they can't find any evidence yet. And if they could, I'd be willing to listen to it that the framers themselves, having understood the concept of the impeachment of a former officer, nonetheless put that in the constitutional text. Um, so that would that is my argument. Uh, it is a matter of, of political and, and indifference to me. That's just the conclusion I come to as a matter of constitutional interpretation of the impeachment clauses. Professor Whittington, the last word is to you. Please tell our great We the People listeners why you believe that the Constitution authorizes the Senate to try 
a former official who has been impeached and why, if the Senate decides to hold a trial and convict the president, the Supreme Court should not and, and likely will not intervene. I, I think the impeachment and trials of former officials, including former presidents, uh, is consistent with both the text uh, and the purpose of the Constitution. It's also consistent with um, the history um, of, of our constitutional practice and of the constitutional practice the framers were drawing on uh, when they included the impeachment power in, in the federal constitution. That provision allowing the House to impeach uh, simply gives them the sole power of impeachment. Um, and the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. Um, I don't think anyone argues that the impeachment that the House has now concluded um, of uh, the sitting president um, is not a valid impeachment, um, in which case the Senate would seem to have the authority to uh, hear um, a trial on the basis of that constitutionally valid uh, impeachment. The text of the Constitution also specifies what happens to sitting officers uh, when they are convicted, which is that the Constitution specifies that they are immediately removed uh, from office and then also gives the Senate the option um, of disqualifying um, uh, those individuals from future office um, if they have been uh, convicted. But I think it's reading an awful lot into that provision about removal to reason backwards from that, that uh, because officers are immediately removed if they're convicted, that therefore only officers sitting incumbent officers um, can, in fact, be convicted or be put on uh, trial um, by, by the Senate. I think that's a thin read in the, in the federal um, tech, constitutional text to bear that uh, burden. Um, and I think it's inconsistent with the larger purposes that we're trying to um, use the impeachment power for, which includes exposing, condemning wrongdoing by those who have held um, office uh, and discouraging um, that kind of behavior from being a, a done in the future by futures, future office holders. Um, and as I noted, it's inconsistent with our history. It's inconsistent with our own history uh, in which we have uh, had Senate trials um, of former officers and that those trials have proceeded despite motions to dismiss because of lack of jurisdiction. Um, it's consistent with our prior history prior to the U.S. Constitution that state constitutions allowed for these proceedings um, and everybody recognized that, that was true as part of what was included in the power of impeachment. And British history included this as part of what they understood the power of impeachment to include. And again, the framers of the U.S. Constitution were familiar with that practice and understood um, that that was part of what it meant to give the House and the Senate the power uh, to conduct uh, an impeachment um, process. I think the much more logical reading is that they did not want to allow those things to continue. Um, they could have easily excluded them from the constitutional text, um, and they chose not to. And so despite the fact they made other decisions that did limit uh, the impeachment power, so by limiting, for example, what kind of punishments the Senate can impose, um, they're specifically trying to reject part of the British practice uh, where additional punishments could be imposed far beyond uh, removal and disqualification. So when they knew that, that they wanted to modify the impeachment power and shrink it relative to the pre-existing practice, they knew how to do that. Um, and I don't think there's any evidence in the text of the Constitution that they were trying to take that step or that they did take that step. Um, and there's no discussion surrounding uh, the drafting and ratification of the Constitution uh, that is suggestive that that's what they were trying to do um, either. Thank you so much, Judge J. Michael Ludig and Professor Keith Whittington, for a civil, substantive, and illuminating discussion about the impeachment power. You've provided a model for civil constitutional dialogue, both for We the People listeners and for the senators of the United States as they take up their solemn constitutional duties in the weeks ahead. Judge Ludic, Professor Whittington, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff Rosen. Appreciate it.
Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of thoughtful, balanced, constitutional debate. And always remember, dear We the People friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across America who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, as we all know, it is more urgently important now than ever. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.